0: I'm Sean Graham, and what's old oldest news this week is family immigration to Canada. Yes, the entire colonial history of Canada is one of people coming to this land and settling, oftentimes, in families. The people picked up their entire lives from various parts of the world and traveled to the land that is now Canada to create the nation state as we know it today. And certainly the written history of Canada is one that for a very long time has been dominated by those political, economic, and social structures that were created by those newcomers to this land and the impact of those on newcomers as well as Indigenous communities across the country. And they've been studied very much at a high level from the perspective of those who took or assumed power within those realms. But in the last few years, things have started to change in how we write and read about the history of immigration, really the history of most topics in Canada, but certainly as it relates to immigration. And more micro histories have become popular where we look at a representative example to highlight broader trends. And that has certainly been the case as it relates to immigration, and in particular, family immigration to Canada, and that is the subject of two new books. From Denmark to the Caribou, The Epic Journey of the Lindhard Sisters by Linda Pederet, and The Russian Refugees, A Family's First Century in Canada by Michael Andruff. And these are two different stories, but they both highlight similar themes within the historiography, but also in the story of immigration to Canada. So in From Denmark to the Caribou, Linda follows the story of Laura Christine and Caroline Lindhard, who are three sisters who left Denmark in 1870 due to war, political turmoil, and limited opportunities and moved to the Caribou region of British Columbia. And it's their story of how they survived In this new environment, some of the tools that they brought with them, we talk about education, for instance, on top of how they had to adapt to the environment around them. And you contrast that to the Russian refugees by Michael Andruff. and that follows his own family's first century in Canada. They were, as the title obviously suggests, from Russia. They Didn't so much immigrate in the same way as what we see in the story Linda's telling, but they were escaping the Bolsheviks following the revolution. And his family was presented with a very different set of circumstances, while at the same time having to use the skills that they had from Russia to survive in their environment as they landed in rural Alberta in 1924. So the books take place at different times in the 1870s and starting in 1924. But again, very common themes between the two and how these stories relate to the broader colonial history of Canada, the role of gender within both families, education, the changing environs in which they came to Canada, as well as the ideas of identity. What is a Canadian and how did these particular families view themselves once they got to Canada? Were they Danes and Russians or were they Canadians or when did that transition take place? Both these books are wonderful. And because the themes were so closely intertwined, I really wanted to talk to Michael and Linda together. So that is what we did. So without any further ado, let's get right into our discussion with Linda Petteret and Michael Andruff. All right. And Mike Andruff and Linda Petteret join me now. How are you two doing today? Wonderful. Thank you. I'm so glad to have the two of you here uh, to discuss your respective books and some of the, the themes that emerge from the books. And I talked about it a little in the intro that there are common themes to the two stories here, which is why I wanted to have the two of you on together. And and Linda, maybe we'll start with you with I think the main theme that emerges from the two books is that these are family stories, uh, stories of, of families coming to Canada, immigrating and what the experience was for them here. And I'm curious for you, what is the appeal of telling a story through a family or telling a family's story?
1: Well, I think telling a family story is actually a new way of doing history. So many, uh, so much of our history from, let's say, the first half of the 1900s was really almost like a hero worship of, of the men on the frontier and what they accomplished and the portrayal of single individual heroes almost heroic uh, adventures they were involved in as as individuals and I think as we look closer at these stories we see that behind those men were families there were uh, communities there were networks and there were families that supported whatever they were involved in and I think as much as we can capture that it gives us a fuller picture of what was actually going on in that era.
0: And Mike, would you agree with Linda's assessment there that uh, it really is the full story of the past by looking at the entire family unit?
2: Yes, definitely. Uh, You know, from my perspective, I was greeted with an email from a cousin who lives in Prince Edward Island. She said, you know, our family's centennial is coming up. We should do something for that in 2024. And I got thinking about, oh, I'm going to write a family history But as I got immersed into the discussion of our family, I realized as I made some research breakthroughs that uh, this was a family and there was tons of history in and around this family. The evolution of an emerging Canadian society, its social safety net, how we dealt with Indigenous matters. Uh, There's a whole range of information that came to me in the course of my research and it was a real epiphany but it was all focused on this trying to tell the story of the family and then as the research broadened out I realized wow I've got this uh, story that goes well beyond the family and looks at us as a people and particularly I think a little different from Linda's story mine is dealing with refugees of course the difference between an immigrant and a refugee is the immigrant chooses to come to Canada as is portrayed in Linda's very well crafted story. In my case, <laughs> there were these characters called Bolsheviks, and uh, they were very nice. And my family wanted to get away from them, and they were classic refugees. Can't stay in your own country or stateless because you've got to go somewhere where you can live in peace and freedom. And they chose Canada.
0: I mean, that's an interesting dynamic, too. Of course, yes, the difference between immigrants and refugees. But Linda, in your book, you talk about the, the push factors as well. What what drove the family to Canada? And obviously, the, the circumstances are different between the two books. But when we're assessing what motivated people to – I mean, we could talk about what, what motivated the decision to come to Canada – how do we assess that against the push factors as well? What what drove people to leave? Obviously, as Mike's saying with with his book, the the Bolsheviks and and these are refugees who are forced out. But in the case of your family, there are push factors as well.
1: Well, I think um, I mean I'm writing about the 1870s when Laura and Caroline Lindhart came to British Columbia. This was still the colony of British Columbia. It was before. Canada or before BC had joined Confederation, uh, just on the on the cusp of that event, actually, or on the so that was a a kind of an optimistic element that was an attractant, perhaps, but they were leaving Europe. Denmark which was you know which had experienced its own difficulties where things were changing it was changing from an agricultural society to an industrial society opportunities were limited for for the young men who were preceding them basically the young men were coming to North America in huge numbers and in bc in the 1860s 1870s it was still the gold rush and i mean that's a fascinating idea that one might find wealth in the ground right i mean what a an attractive idea for anybody and you know that was in phase, in the, coincided with the changes happening in, in europe that you in fact could improve your station in life through work through seizing opportunity, through uh, breaking some of the, with some of the traditions of the past and being a bit of an adventurer. So there were so many, I think, elements that come together in that time that bring people to what was called the new country or the new world of North America and elsewhere. And I guess colonial societies around the world were attracting people.
0: But part of that too is, and and you mentioned this earlier, the idea that so much of that was driven by men, right? Men pushing the West, going to the frontier. Uh, Men are the ones who are largely associated in in the imagery and the imagination of the gold rush. So here you have these sisters who uh, who you're profiling in the book. And when we think of that popular imagination of it, how much does gender then play a role in this story and kind of confronting those larger themes that you talked about earlier.
1: In that era, the Lindhart sisters that I'm writing about were a little bit ahead of their time, or they were on the edge. Most of the the people who were first adventuring uh, away from Europe were the young men. And often it had to do with the fact that land was limited in their home countries, that if they were uh, growing up on farms, the um, opportunity of them ever owning land was limited, so they were the first adventurers, and I guess, and that that I think is what statistics show us, what the data from the time show us that that single men and even married some married men preceded, you know, were the early immigrators that that came to North America, seeking wealth and. That's not unusual in many immigrant families and even refugee families. The men precede the women uh, by some period of time. And that's, I think, always been the case, that they need to accumulate often some wealth and then bring their families and children later, wives and children later. So the data from the time shows that single women from Denmark were not often immigrating. It was more single men. So the Lindhart women were some earlier early adventurers, and I do think that there were women adventurers in the late nineteen hundreds hundreds that I find fascinating that were now what they also found in their home area their home country of England or Europe is that because young men were leaving first, there was a surplus of women. And because of all the wars that had also happened, there was a surplus of women in these countries. So the women saw a few opportunities for their own selves in those countries, either for marriage or for um, earning an income. So I think also then they were seizing opportunities.
0: Now, if we contrast that then to Mike and and the story of, of your family as refugees coming... How does gender fit into the the refugee story and what they experienced first in Russia and then the experience of coming, which of course is going to be very different from the experience Linda's describing?
2: Well, here I I draw on a portion of the book that describes the old believers. Uh, They're a religious sect of Russian Orthodoxy, and that's a group that my father's family was a part of. In that society. Women were non-factors, sadly. It was all about the men and how they conducted their affairs, both commercially and and, uh, domestically and their families. What I find fascinating, listening to Linda's account from the 1870s and that push from Europe to this industrialization taking place, it was uh, not until the uh, mid-40s to 50s that that was happening in the Agrarian Society of Alberta. And this is where my father, as a young man, then decided that he would leave the farm and press on to an industrial town, uh, first Sinclair Mills and then Port Alberni. So, you know, his experience with his wife was that they were the first people to break the bonds of this old believer tradition. In that tradition, men grew beards. My dad never grew a beard. Women wore babushkas. My mother never wore a babushka, they were the young people of uh, this refugee group that really wanted to bust out and become Canadian. And of course, that meant assimilating. And uh, I think from my mother's point of view, she she just relished the notion of, of being a young, modern Canadian woman.
0: That that brings up a really interesting question of Canadian culture and, and what it means to actually be Canadian, quote unquote. And certainly, Mike, in, in the case of your family and that story, given the what, what comes after once, you know, t- into the 30s, 40s, and then obviously once the Cold War starts, uh, having Russian origin or, or coming from a Russian family starts to mean something different than when it, uh, it, they came initially in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Linda, the same with with your group, the sisters. What cultural customs are okay within a colonial Canadian society? And Mike, maybe we we'll start with you on this in, in terms of was there a desire or a feel that the family needed to disassociate itself from its European origins in order to again, quote-unquote, become Canadians?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, I, I never learned the Russian language at home because we're not Russian anymore. We're Canadian. Uh, my father had a real distaste for union, labor unions. Why? Because Igor Gazenko, that cipher clerk who defected to Canada and, and became a real uh, hot-button uh, kind of guy with his accusations of Cold War influences in Canadian societies, particularly through unions. That drew my father away from the notion of having anything to do with uh, uh, unions. And he was a very proud guy, wanted to be Canadian first, wanted to raise his family Canadian first. And he always used to say, you know, you're a first generation Canadian, which I relished. So, yeah, there was a strong push to become who we are today—that uh, <laughs> patchwork nature of Canadianism—and
0: and Linda, for the sisters, did they encounter a similar thing, and did they have a similar desire to shed certain parts of their Danish heritage?
1: Well, I think I think the societies were quite different, you know, 1910, 1920, as compared to 1870s. I mean, 1870s were very fluid and open. I think in in contrast. And so also, if I just backtrack a bit, I think, you know, what opportunities there were available for women in BC at the time were quite limited. In other words, they were constrained. They couldn't be citizens. They couldn't hold land in their own name. There were many things. And I make that point in the book that the main decision they had control over was who to marry. And that was the biggest factor in determining their social and economic well-being in the future. So um that was the opportunity that that women had they could i suppose they were freer to marry who they chose in north america perhaps um at the time so but who they married was was the main factor in determining their well their future well-being and and the well-being of their children so there was that so there was that constraint there i mean there wasn't like they i mean some came over and were minors, but not many, and some came over and were independent business women, but not that many and so we have the Lindhart sisters who if move into i claim they're best understood as entrepreneurs, but part of their entrepreneurial um futures come as a result of their uh, husbands positions in the society so again it goes back to this whole thing that who they marry is a huge determining factor however in the 1870s North American Canadian society was much less defined as anything I mean it was fluid it was open and in that sense there were opportunities if they learned different language. It was probably Chinook, which was the operational language at the time, and in, in probably much of BC, it was the trade language that, that many people had to work in. And and the, the, the mix of races and cultures in Barkerville is quite amazing. Barkerville area, the caribou area where they ended up. So... They would have had to be much more eclectic. The society was much less fixed. Um, it was much more fluid. And within that was a different kind of freedom and opportunity, I think, for women.
2: If I could just interject, you know, I, I identify a, a lot with what you're saying, Linda, in terms of the barriers that women had to face. Uh, when I was researching documentation for my, uh, my father and, and his father's citizenship, in Canada, of course it wasn't Canada. it was the Dominion of Canada, of course, they weren't Canadians, mm-hmm. they were British subjects mm-hmm. and on the back of my father's naturalization certificate uh, it knows uh, this is my grandfather's it says that his wife is not included in citizenship mm-hmm. because they married in Russia, and it essentially cast her aside as as not relevant. And and I was shocked when I read that. I, mm-hmm. I thought, you gotta be kidding me. That all changed, of course, with the Canadian Citizen Act, and everybody became whole, so to speak, including women. But uh the the forces of the governance of business as regards to women and men, it was very imbalanced and uh, shockingly so to somebody out of a contemporary society.
0: Well, I'm curious if we do a, a almost a compare and contrast here. Then on the economic prospects, uh, if we start in the 1870s, Linda, you know, you mentioned the entrepreneurial spirit that was required. But does the story of the sisters, the, their uh, marital status, and and who they end up marrying, does that give us a clue into overall? The economic prospects of immigrants into British Columbia in this
1: era—that's well, a good question. <laughs> um, sure, I guess. I mean, unavoidably, it it does. Uh, but even within that, gosh, I think as I try to understand this era of you know 150 years ago, <clears throat> there seem to be many ups and downs, and even. I mean, this was not uh, an upward or a downward trajectory they were on. It seemed to be up and down. And maybe it speaks to the uh, resource-based, gold-based economy of the time, that it had good years and bad years. But I guess what I found really interesting is these entrepreneurs had to be promoters. They were promoters of the society. They were promoters of the province. They were promoters of the caribou because their vested interests were part of, of that. If, if the, if the excitement around a new gold find brought lots of people in and business was good, they prospered. So, you know, they're, they I mean, I guess that's what being an entrepreneur is. You, you know, it's promoting the society and your interests that are an integral part of that. So what what were the econ- but you know at the same time they made money and they lost money and their their wealth went up and down but then the the excitement in the society went up and down as well and uh, you know so there were times when Laura in charge of her business in the small community now ghost town of Stanley she would have sold. Her husbands probably at times would have sold those businesses. But if it was a downturn in the gold rush, or the gold market, the prospects of the area, there was not a market for their business. They persisted, they persevered, and they saw the bad times through. And then there would be an upturn again, either new technologies or new excitement about some new prospect. And there would be an upturn in activity in the mining community. So their wealth And their, I guess, their well-being sort of went up and down with the economy of the time that revolved around, I mean, it revolved around the gold and the wealth of the area. But the resort, I mean, BC has always probably, even to today, we see how resource-based it is. Its economy is driven by the resources of the province, the natural resources.
2: One of the things I noticed uh, about your book, Linda, that uh, I, I think in contrast to mine is that the these young women, uh, the Lindhards, they they had a very good education early on in Denmark. Yes. Uh, I, I thought that played a big role in their ability to become entrepreneurial and to, to deal with business prospects. In contrast, my family is coming over. They've they're really not well educated. They're a farming community. My father has to leave school at age twelve. His bigger brother, older brother, who is helping his father on the farm, dies unfortunately, um, and therefore my father's called into service. Uh, and that whole process of of our family history was one of uh, flying by the seat of your pants, uh, ill informed, uneducated. I talk in my Book about my father and his relatives starting a savings program to build wealth, and they decided to do that through real estate. But I also say later on, after they've acquired an income property with, you know, just quite spectacular results, they mismanage it. Why? Because they really don't have a good, sound understanding of business. They haven't been properly uh, schooled in critical thinking and how to deal with problem solving. And and the situation, unfortunately, falls apart. So I found it fascinating in your story that your characters came with what I consider good, solid grounding in an educational experience, whereas my refugee family didn't have that opportunity at all. And it showed, I think, in their lifestyle and, and how they lived their lives.
1: I think you're I think you're right. I mean, that impressed me as well. The other thing I learned in in doing this research was uh, about the, uh, you know, the two, well, probably all the husbands they married were quite well educated and we sometimes have the view that the Americans that came into British Columbia with the gold rush were sort of the rough and ready guys out of California, you know, that were kind of lawless outlaws or whatever. But in fact, the, the two American husbands who were quite influential in their futures were quite well educated. They had been educated in colleges of Eastern United States, mm-hmm. you know, gone, gone West to join the California gold, gold rush where it was like they gained experience. And then having seen that gold rush unfold, they came into BC. And so they were schooled formally, but also experientially. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, and then, of course, the women themselves coming from Denmark, where schooling was compulsory to age 14, they had at least elementary schooling, which was quite significant in that era.
0: And I'm curious, too, to to, to continue on this note of the, the education side of it, Mike, with your family and the story that you, you just shared with your, your father being pushed into action or pressed into action, on the farm mm-hmm. at a young age, that seems to fit in with the general conception of what happens more so or happened more so in uh, agrarian parts of the country, in the rural parts of Canada. So how much does your family story that that part of it just fit into this different era that you're writing about where immigrant families are on the prairies, they are going into agriculture in greater numbers than perhaps is the case in the 1870s when Linda's writing about like that story of a young man not getting educated because he has to go work on the farm feels like a very Western Canadian story of the era.
2: Yeah. And my research, and I just love doing the research in this book, that that is what made the difference for me in, in writing this story was burrowing down into details of that era. Now, Interesting, about 1945, at the height of the, the war years, there were 700,000 farms on the prairies. This had been a vision of this fellow Clifton, Clifford Sifton, who said, look, I'm a minister of the interior. I've got to develop this land. He did it through treaties uh, with the indigenous, and he opened up the prairies with a massive survey that Chop the land up into what we see today when we fly over the country, that checkerboard matrix. That's all based on uh, Mr. Sipton's desire to open up the development of this country by way of farming. I mentioned 700,000 farms in 1945. After that time, 39,000 farmers left those farms every year subsequently. And why? (laughs) Farming's tough work. And they realized that a lot of these characters living in the cities, in these industrial cities, they were living a pretty good life. They only had to work five days to get the weekend off and they get paid on the farm. Yeah. You didn't always get paid. You got room and board and more work. So, you know, there was a real incentive to change. And I think if you had skills that you could take with you business skills, for example, so much the better in the case of my father, he took his ability as a laborer forward, and that's that's how he chose to succeed. So I found that whole study of the development of the prairies and the subsequent draining of those human resources from the land, very interesting. And, and Linda, you touched on that <laughs> like 50 years earlier, that was happening in Europe. So that was interesting to me.
1: What impressed me by these families, though, of the 1870s in British Columbia, is they they had to be vertically integrated. Like they not only ran their stores up in the caribou, but they ran the packing the pack trains that got the supplies up there, and they Mm -hmm. ran the the importing businesses. And they were just and then you know they they. They brought in supplies for their shops, their stores, but maybe they also were running uh, saloons and hotels and things like that, and as well as mining companies. So they were bringing in supplies for everything they needed, and they were never doing just one thing. I mean, they were also farmers and miners and ran pack trains and freight trains, uh, freighters and, you know, a whole variety of um, businesses going on at the same time. So that's what spoke to me of of their entrepreneurial nature is they were doing everything, it seemed, and many people were in that era.
2: Something I identified with in your story, Linda, was this notion of preemptive land sales. And this is something that I relate to in my story. I look at the Indigenous both in Treaty 8 in northern Alberta uh, and in Port Alberni, where there was this massive forest industry that was using all the resources on unceded land. (laughs) And uh, in the case of your story, you're talking about how a gentleman has to just apply to the, at the time it was this Mr. Seymour, and he would grant them land if they used it. And you cite in your writing uh, a letter from an Indian chief saying, hey, this is our land. What are you doing here? And I came across in my story guys like this uh, fellow Trutch in Victoria, he had no interest at all in the Indian claim. We're moving ahead, developing these resources. And please, if you're indigenous, get out of the way. (laughs) It was awful from today's point of view.
0: Well, I think both stories, right, touch on that element of colonialism and, and the dispossession of land, and I, I think though it's it's interesting that it's done in in very different contexts between the two stories, and uh, part of that, of course, is where the stories are taking place and when these two stories are taking place. And Linda, I do not know if sorry if you, if you wanted to respond to what Mike was saying there. I think I might have cut you off. I, I'm sorry, but it, it does strike me that for as much as this is a country of immigrants and, and immigration, it all still fits within the colonial story. Uh, and so these various elements have to work together when we are telling the history of this country and, and how people have come here and engaged with those who were here before, and and it's a, a, obviously a very complicated narrative to try to make any sort of sense out of it. And I don't know if either of you have any have any thoughts on on how, in general, potentially stories of immigration or or these stories in particular that you're telling in your respective books fit in to the larger story of colonialism in Canada?
2: As you said and alluded to, it is a big and complicated topic. I don't think any one of us has a definitive answer as to how we can stitch together lives post-colonialism and and have everybody at peace and and happiness. Uh, Linda, what are your thoughts?
1: I guess my thoughts were only going back more to the 1860s 1870s in British Columbia which was well I guess because I've been so immersed in the history of it that I I it, it, and a couple of things is that the newcomers were in a minority right up till I think about the 1910s or 1920s I forget but they were the newcomer population in BC was Quite small and and I do touch on that in terms of how the everybody knew everybody the newcomers knew you know knew each other, and they worked very closely uh, with the indigenous people to the extent that they relied on the indigenous people uh, mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. the mail through to get the goods you know to transport the goods when needed. And there was a very close relationship in the 1860s. There was a lot of intermarriage. And two of the characters in, in this story I write about uh, had Indigenous families before they married the Lindhart women. So it, it made for complex families, but not unusual uh, relationships or families. And I tried to just point out that, you know, it was a different society in which, there were close and dependent relationships between the indigenous and the newcomers.
2: In my family's experience, when they were farming in the area near Fairview, oftentimes in the winter, uh, food supply was very scarce. And they relied on a local Indian band to provide moose meat for their survival. (laughs) And in the summer, they gave them vegetables. So that was the exchange between the
0: two uh, people. It really does mirror the story of the country too. If you if you go back five hundred years uh, or four hundred years from from what we're talking about, the first French individuals who came, there was exchange so that they could survive uh, the winters here. Right. So you know the, these patterns do repeat themselves. These themes uh, continue with newcomers uh, and indigenous relations uh, in the co- it, when you can find those stories of cooperation within communities and, and things that are built along the way. So it it does. Add something to the broader story of colonialism that uh, you know these these are really big, complicated uh, questions when, when we think about them, and uh, obviously these two books do a wonderful job of of contributing to these stories. So I, I want to know, and we've really only scratched the surface of of both books, really, but I I want to know from the two of you. What are the legacies? Do you think of your respective families? Obviously, Mike, you might say that you yourself uh, are the <laughs> legacy uh, of your of your family. But uh, Linda, if we start with yeah. you, uh, what do you think the legacy of this family is, and uh, the significance of sharing this story, and and what people can learn from delving into the the history of the Lindhardt sisters?
1: Well, I try to tell this story from the women's point of view, um, and I think and in that sense it's an attempt to recover the stories of um that weren't evident i mean the women were not reported in the newspapers i really had to dig to find traces of what their lives could have been like who they were even was obscured you know if you unless you really dig beneath the surface so it's it's i try to uncover their stories, and to uh, tell them. I think that the bigger story, you know, the bigger lesson, the bigger legacy, if you will, is that we're all better off when we all are recognized and participate fully in a society in in the world. And that the more of us that are permitted to play the more we win kind of thing. I think this is the stuff that's being talked about in sports these days, but it is so true that, you know, it's a, so it's a story that um, is an argument for recognition and equality of everybody and participation, equal participation and opportunity for everyone. I mean, there are questions though, that that poses, I think, like, you know, uh, When I sit back and look at it, I question how we define progress, how we define opportunity. I think those are bigger questions in our society as we, you know, look at the environmental issues we face and sort of the future we face together. What do we mean by those terms? What is the good life that we're searching for and hoping for? Because I think that's what drives people and drives societies and families is we want a better world for our children, but what is that better world? So those are the bigger questions, I think, that are posed.
0: And
2: Mike, uh, on your end. So we go back to 1924, and the government of Canada says to 21 families coming from Harbin, China as as Russian refugees, if you're going to come to Canada, we want you to bring $25,000 with you. And you would say, what? They wanted landing money. The Russian refugees came to Vancouver with $7,200 in their pockets. Uh Uh-oh, what to do next? So there was this private organization called the Russian Refugee Relief Society of America. This is a bunch of expat Russians living in America who are trying to support their brethren coming out of a war-torn country. They come up with $17,500 to guarantee to the Canadian government that these funds would be forwarded to the organizer of this group of 21 families, and that was essentially to set them up for their first year in Canada. The CPR had gone out and bought tents and some animals and some stoves. The money that would pay for that would be this $25,000. So this touched me immensely that we had private sponsorship of refugees in 1924 in Canada. So as I progressed in my work of the manuscript, I I met this editor who said, Mike, what's the relevance here of this story? And I thought, "Okay, now I got my homework here. So I decided to contrast private sponsorship of refugees then to now. And I realized that, you know, that the needs of refugees has grown exponentially from the early days. We have something like between an estimated 90 to 100 million refugees floating around stateless in United Nations High Commission refugee camps looking for a better day. And I thought, holy mackerel, there is, that's relevant. And our story is relevant because we were a part of this private sponsorship. So that's when I teamed up with Mosaic BC. They're a immigrant support organization. They're funded 50% by the federal government, 50% by the provincial government. They've been in business for 45 years. They're what is called a, a sponsorship agreement holder. And this is an organization that can literally bring refugees to Canada, but they need financial support. And that's where the private sponsorship comes into play. And so I envisioned something called the Home Glen legacy fund Home Glen was the CPR farming community that these 116 refugees landed in and so today i say to my fellow descendants and friends of refugees around the world let's contribute money to this legacy fund uh, i'm asking for $30,000 it's the objective for the fund that's to sponsor a refugee family for their first year in canada pay for shelter clothing, food, personal needs, and let's just pay it forward, recognizing the value of our freedom being Canadians. You know, I pose that question when I'm talking to other groups in book clubs and whatnot and ask them to value their freedom. How do you value freedom? You vote, you sing your national anthem, and guess what? One out of five Canadians passionately give to charities. That's celebrating freedom. And so that's that's how my book uh, ends up and uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, I would love to be a a part of all of that and and make it happen. And hopefully we're going to try and make it happen before June the 18th, 2024, the hundred year anniversary of arriving in Canada.
0: Very well said. And uh, hopefully that happens. Uh, And as as you said uh, before we started, all your royalties from the book are going to that cause. That's correct. Uh, So that's a wonderful uh, initiative. Uh, And, you know, and as Linda said, too, like both these stories are examples of communities coming together and the power of that. And certainly the Home Glen Legacy Fund uh, is part of that. And Linda as well, you're donating proceeds that you're getting from your royalties to the Bakerville archives. Uh, So another wonderful initiative there again, showing the power of community. And it's just wonderful that uh, the two of you not only have written these stories, but are going to continue to push forth the community benefits uh, from the financial aspects uh, of telling the story. So uh, just wonderful initiatives uh, from the both of you and, and two wonderful books that Again, I said it a couple minutes ago, we've really only scratched the surface of. So go pick them up. If for no other reason than the financial benefits to these programs, to community programs here, but they're also really uh, wonderful stories, very well told. So again, uh, Mike Andruff, the Russian refugees, a family's first century in Canada, Linda Petteret. From Denmark to the Caribou the epic journey of the Lindhard sisters. Linda, we'll start with you if people want to uh, learn more about some of the work you are doing in addition to the book, uh, what's the best way for them to uh, keep tabs on, on all the great stuff you got going on?
1: Uh, probably through Heritage House, which is the, who is the publisher of of this book? I think that's the best way.
0: And Mike, what about you? Yeah, I have a
2: a website called the Russian Refugees Plural dot ca the Russian Refugees dot ca, and on that website you can see my upcoming events. You get a, a short preview of the book. Uh, I have a donation button if you want to join our Legacy Fund program, and I have uh, some video blogs that essentially give one minute stories of what the book's about and what we're trying to do with with their fundraising program. So the RussianRefugees.ca also includes, by the way, uh, under the contacts menu selection, a group called Descendants. And here I'm appealing to all of the people who grew up from the 116 refugees to contact me. We're gonna try and put together a reunion, believe it or not, in Alberta to celebrate 100 years of being Canadian. It's, it would be a great party.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, wonderful. Uh, and we will link to everything, links to where you can buy the books uh, and to uh, Mike's website and to Heritage House. We'll link to all that in the show notes, or if you head over to Active History, the post that's associated with this episode. Uh, so be sure to uh, check out all that great stuff. Uh, and again, pick up these two books. They're wonderful uh, in their storytelling and, and tell very important stories. So uh, Mike, Linda, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Sean.
0: So there you have it, my chat with Linda Pederet and Michael Andruff. and I thank them for their time. And as we say, please do check the show notes down below if you want to visit some of the links, some of the sites that they talked about at the end there. And with that, it's time for today's historical headline of the week, which, sadly, is a very recent story. This is from the Toronto Star from yesterday. February 14th, 2023, Irem Koca with a piece entitled Turkish Diaspora Urges Canada to Expedite Immigration of Families Hit by Earthquake. As I'm sure everyone has read about, there was a major earthquake along the Turkish-Syrian border within the last couple of weeks. The last death toll ice, I believe, was in the 35,000 range. And Canada has announced humanitarian aid and assistance to support the people. I believe the announcement was around $10 million that Canada has committed to contribute. But at the same time, there is an online petition going around right now asking Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada to expedite visa applications of family who are stranded in Turkey. The idea behind this petition is that individuals who have family members who are settled in Canada would be fast-tracked through the family reunification stream, with the goal being to get these individuals who are stranded in Turkey at the moment to Canada faster than they otherwise would be, given the circumstances there right now. And in reading about this, it struck me that Michael had talked about this on the show, where He mentioned that men typically were the first to come, families were separated, families were were brought over later on. And here we have the situation playing out today where there are individuals who have come to Canada, have settled in Canada, and family members are now trying to join them. And the tragic earthquake along the Turkish-Syrian border has highlighted it within that particular region, a region that has already has thousands and thousands of displaced individuals owing to the war, the earthquake served as another event that displaced even more people, creating another humanitarian crisis that, for a lot of people, Canada can help resolve in part by expediting family reunification through immigration. And maybe I was just sensitive to this particular topic, given that we had just talked with Linda and Mike. But going through the article, seeing some of the stories, it serves to really contextualize how immigration, and emigration for that matter, are family decisions. Even if everybody isn't coming together for whatever reason at one time, they are family decisions. And you certainly see that in both their books, that the decisions that are made, our family decisions, and the stories that are told are very much done within that family unit, however you want to define the family unit. So this serves as yet another example of that phenomenon. And I truly believe that the two stories that we discussed today provide a lot of very useful context to what's going on right now, in particular, this petition that as I read this, more than 7,800 people have signed. Which is why Turkish Diaspora urges Canada to expedite immigration of families hit by earthquake is today's historical headline of the week. And with that, I will say thank you for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast, likes, rates, comments, all that good stuff. Helps us beat the algorithm, helps us grow, helps other people find us. Of course, you can always head over to activehistory.ca. Past episodes are there. Plus, check out the written material great series for Black History Month going on on Tuesdays and Thursdays, which is why this is coming out on a Wednesday, changing up the day to fit into our publishing schedule. So do check those articles out. And Of course, as always, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, whatsoldestnews at gmail.com. So thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back with you again next week for more What's Oldest News.